0: Welcome to the Marketjecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by Eric Franchi and Ratko or the founder of So Ratko, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start with some housekeeping. Uh, so first of all, this week on Marketjecture TV, we released a in-depth video with Mark Grether, the head of Uber's advertising group. And because it's such an interesting episode and has so much content, we decided to make that free to all subscribers. Um, so you need to register at the site to see it, but there's no cost. So we'd recommend that everyone do that and subscribe to our newsletter so you get updates on this great content coming out of architecture. Second point is uh, we are still talking about bringing some advertising to this podcast. So if you'd like to reach thousands of ad tech and martech professionals each week, Give me an email, Ari at MarketExtraTV. And thirdly, next week is the Possible Conference, uh, where both Eric and I will be hanging out. Ratko, will you be at Possible? Okay, say hi to Ratko too. So uh, please uh, reach out to us if you'd like to have a meeting or you want to talk, and maybe we'll even do some man on the street interviews for next week's podcast. We're still trying to figure that out. Yeah, we well, <laughs> A couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, you said you were not going, and then
1: something something changed, and now you're going. Um, what well, what happened?
0: you know, I don't know why I was not going. I don't know why I am going. I'm not uh, self-aware enough to understand my decision processes. That's yes, fair. All right. So, Retko, you're known for your newsletter. That's one of the things people know you for, um, This Week in Ad Tech, which is funny because this podcast, we call it the Market Desh podcast, but internally we call it This Week in Ad Tech. Uh, we just didn't want to call it that because you've used the name, and it's a great name. How did that come about? Um, how did you start this newsletter and tell us about it? When I started AdPros back in 2016, I knew right away that
2: the marketing strategy was going to be centered around email. And so my initial goal was to build an email list of a thousand people. And the way that I started doing it was by, you know, writing some pretty long form articles on the website, tried to make them authoritative on topics like, you know, header bidding, ad fraud, how to evaluate DSPs, that sort of stuff. And so for the first year, I just collected email opt-ins on the website just from, you know, referral traffic and SEO. But it wasn't a very compelling value prop. It was sort of your typical sign up and get updates. So that turned out to be pretty slow. And I only had around, I think, 100 people on the mailing list after the first year. So then summer 2017, I was trying to figure out how could I publish something more frequently, something like every week related to the ad tech industry in a way that it could, you know, drive growth of the email list. And so the sort of general concept of the weekly newsletter was the first piece of the puzzle. And so I was like, okay, what can I do every week that's unique and provides value to the reader? And that's where, you know, the idea
0: of basing it on industry news came in. It's definitely endless. I mean, we entertain it every week. And every Monday I I create the notes for this podcast and I have a news section. I always say, I hope there's some news this week. I hope we'll have something to talk about. And we've never had a problem. (laughs) So it's endless. Well, I mean. I would say like one of the limitations like that's true
2: but also one of the limitations of the of the kind of weekly model is that maybe you guys will come to appreciate this in time but there is a certain reliance on industry news coverage which you know tends to ebb and flow in terms of like what's newsworthy so sometimes topics get
0: repetitive but for the most part it is a pretty sort of endless stream yeah we have ended up talking about twitter and then the other two-thirds of our podcast we've talked about the ssp dsp conflict
1: yeah, what's interesting about what what you do, Reko, um and, and how recently is um, you don't rely on industry news. Um, you, you're sort of like creating your own content through service. You know, so you're, you're sort of like taking a trend and then rather than you know, sort of like reporting on the reporting, you're going direct to all of the constituents of your newsletter, which are you know primarily like people that work in the space. Um, and you're 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 providing, I think, some original insights. From the people that are that are you know actually doing this stuff, which I think is
2: is awesome. Thanks. Yeah, I, I added that uh, over time. It was kind of like a new feature that I added after a few years of doing it. But yeah, I guess like kind of going back to the concept of the newsletter and and kind of focusing on industry news. The sort of last piece was just the format, and so I decided to do something that I used to do as part of the leadership team at SiteScout. You know, share snippets of articles that I found interesting and just add my comments to it. So why I thought it was important or wrong or where there's an opportunity, stuff like that. And, you know, I kind of knew that everyone on the team is busy. You can't rely on people to read stuff. So when I shared the thing that, you know, the articles with them, I would, you know, highlight specific sentences and just kind of make it really easy to digest. Um, instead of just sending them like a link and saying, you know, thoughts,
0: question mark. So, yeah, the, the highlighted uh, parts of articles is pretty neat. Easy to digest. I like the way you said that. Um... So you—it's pretty big. Like, how many subscribers do you have at this point? Uh, There's close to twelve thousand.
2: So the the high God, yeah. (laughs) So the high—the high watermark was actually fourteen thousand, but that was pre-pandemic, and so, yeah, because of the pandemic and layoffs and you know, emails bouncing and all of that, um, it kind of fell down a
1: bit. But now it's like stabilizing at around twelve k. What's the composition? No, I'd love to hear. What is the composition? Eight, yeah, people. Yeah, and specifically, yeah, sector, and then if you break it down, presumably you do, like U.S. versus non-U.S. I did the geo breakdown
2: once. It was a a, a very, almost a 50-50 balance between uh, North America and Europe. There are people in like APAC, but for the most part, it's uh, North America and Europe. And then I actually did analysis of the cities as well. So if you want to know the top ad tech cities, it's probably no surprise that New York is number one. Is there is there anything not not obvious? Tel Aviv? How's Tel Aviv? It's there. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was definitely there. It's it's something if I remember, it was like New York, then London, then San Francisco, then Chicago, then Toronto, and then it just kind of like, you know, it's like Paris and Berlin and stuff like that.
0: You know, I was just gonna bring up you're based in Canada, so let's have a shout out for Canadian Ad Tech. There's a surprising amount of Canadian ad tech. Absolutely. Yeah, I think Index is a big
2: representative in Toronto. We, we have a startup we invested in in, uh, in Canada um, called TAVE. You, you know TAVE? I don't think I've come across them.
0: Eric, sorry. not all Canadians know each other. It's a big country. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was like Jersey. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so t- what's the business model? Uh, uh, the, are you making money from the newsletter or, or is it mostly the, um, the consulting through AdProft? It's a pretty much
2: a 50-50 split. So like 50% of the revenue is from consulting, 50% is from uh, the paid newsletter. So, I mean, it's always kind of been a job because it was basically the core of the marketing flywheel for the business. But what ended up happening was, you know, the production of the newsletter was just taking up a significant portion of my time. And uh, so then I decided to sort of split the newsletter into two versions, one which is like a free summary and the other with sort of paid analysis. Uh, so it's kind of like a freemium. And so, uh, yeah, now it's a, absolutely a proper
0: job. Awesome. Uh, so what's going on in ad tech? Like, what are the hot topics both uh, from, in your newsletter that you're covering and also that you're being asked to consult on?
2: Sure. So I think the, you know, everyone kind of talks about, you know, commerce media and CTV and things like that as, as like opportunities. You know, I think over the years of an, analyzing the, uh, the industry, kind of seeing how the world is changing, it's pretty clear to me like what's around the curve one area is I think obviously privacy. You know, I think it's always interesting just given how often things are evolving around ad tech, whether it's, you know, the platform policies or the legal stuff. That said, you know, I think a lot of people do find privacy boring or uninteresting, but, you know, I think there's certain things that are going to change at some point and it might not be tomorrow, but there are certain things that seem inevitable, like in terms of the writing being on the wall for certain practices. And so I think that part is for sort of fairly predictable about where things are heading, so it's it's not maybe the most exciting thing, but I do think it is important uh, just because of how much it impacts how ad tech companies make decisions, how they balance short term, long term priorities, their finite
0: resources, that sort of stuff. Right. So, are you being pulled in as a consultant to help people f- predict the future or plan for the future as it relates to privacy? Yeah, yeah. In in
2: some cases, for sure. Especially now, there's a lot more private equity activity happening in the space, and so helping with like due diligence those sorts of projects
0: yeah so private equity looks at some companies in ad tech and they're like is this cash flow that we're seeing right here sustainable or does it go away in five years that's that's the question i always get asked by various people in the industry exactly it's like what's the shelf life of their business
1: model do you have a framework for, for how you talk about some of the existing solutions and what you think needs to needs to be built
2: I don't know, I don't know if I have a, a, a
1: like a like a
2: formal framework but um but yeah I do I sort I sort of think of it as balancing yeah like the short term and long term priorities so that's why I try not to be too judgmental when it comes to things like you know fingerprinting it's you know the, like every company has to balance you know balance the various you know initiatives and various strategies that they have going on so yeah I try to just look at it by like what's the shelf life of this what's the likelihood of you know certain practices being regulated or
0: made illegal or 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 stuff like that. So so what's what's your answer if i if i came to you and say i'm about, I'm going to invest a billion dollars in a company whose current business model is largely cookie based. What what's your quick answer to get me uh, excited to hire you as a consultant? Well, the, <laughs> the quick answer would be i mean it depends,
2: right? <laughs> <laughs> great consulting answer. Um so so that's like that's one thing. But it's not, it's not just purely the negative part of privacy. It's, it's kind of easy to focus on the negative. But I also think that there's definitely an opportunity in privacy as well, uh, especially
0: around compliance. I mean, it, there's obviously a lot of plumbing. So if you're a participant in the industry and or you want to anticipate the privacy changes, you have to do a lot of work, um, moving data around, changing the way you collect it. Like I would consider that all plumbing, uh, and people need help doing that. But the strategic question is the bigger one. Uh, which is if you start thinking four or five years out, you know, sure, third-party cookies are gone, but is IP address gone or is it illegal to use IP address? Uh, is it illegal to fingerprint? These are kind of the existential questions that can move, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of value depending on which way they end up. Yeah, 100%. That's the whole nature of investing in these later stage companies is yeah, made, I mean, evaluating those risks. Yeah. I mean, the future is inherently
2: unknowable. Uh, And so it's just, it's a question of probabilities, what's likely, what's unlikely. You know, I think that's also one of the, one of the reasons why I like to ask some of the questions in the newsletter around, you know, I think there was one question that was like, what was the, like, what do you think is the shelf life of, of fingerprinting? And it kind of, the answers were pretty bifurcated. So there was like one half of answers that were all like between one and three years. And then the other half were all like, yeah, yeah, it's going to be around, like, five-plus years. Yeah, I, I definitely see that bifurcation myself. Um, and then as far as, like, the other the other thing, which is, you know, I think you asked, like, what's interesting. I, I do think that, you know, the whole decarbonization sustainability trend, I think that's interesting as well. You had a very interesting tweet on this subject, Ratko. I did, I did, yeah. I mean, it was, it was like a, I mean, it was a joke, but, you know, there's always, like, a nugget of truth. In- what was the tweet? I missed it, like... It was. It was about the. I think it was about the the spectrum of uh, sustain, uh, sustainability efforts or decarbonization efforts, and how it starts with just like you know cutting off made for advertising sites, all the way to like walk into the ocean.
0: <laughs> yeah. Let, let me. <laughs> let, let me actually. Well, uh, <laughs> all right, we so can follow it up. We don't have a producer on the show. So producer Eric. Eric <laughs> <in it>. Producer <laughs> Eric here. <laughs> all right, and, and I quote from from Radko,
1: the spectrum of decarbonization efforts in ad tech. Cut out MFA sites. Buy via direct paths. Buy direct from pubs. No RTB. Use banners instead of video. This is where it starts to get fun. Use text ads instead of banners. Stop advertising. Shut our business.
0: <laughs>
1: Reject worldly possessions. Walk into ocean. <laughs> that is great. <laughs> you are like so underrated as a tweeter. I hope that, that you know if nothing else, people follow you because you've got some great shit. Thanks. Yeah. I've,
2: uh, I need to get better at it. Uh, I'm doing it more consistently, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think like jokes aside, I think one of the main things that makes, uh, you know, the whole decarbonization thing interesting is just how it applies corporate leverage to what looks like essentially SPO, right? Supply path optimization. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, you know, well said. You're using these like, um, ESG mandates to push through stuff that I think everybody should have been doing anyways. Yeah. Uh, like, Jounce has been, you know, pioneering this base the space last few years, you know. So, so I, I don't think anybody would disagree that you know cutting out all the you know crappy sources of supply or you know questionable practices like bid duplication is, is wasteful. But now that now you have this real impetus at the corporate level, this real like imperative to make it happen, so you have real leverage now to apply these SPO efforts.
0: Yeah. When I uh, interviewed Brian O'Kelly from Architecture TV, it was our first interview, um, and he was telling me all about Scope 3, I, I kind of pushed him on this a little bit, which is, isn't this just going to benefit simple sites with very little advertising with direct paths? And he's basically said, yeah, yeah, and that's good. Uh, it's it's just the the waste from carbon is acting like a proxy for good advertising practices. And I don't know if other industries are the same. It's it's kind of a happy coincidence in our industry, I think. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's very, it's it's very
2: clever. Um, and you know, I think it's by attaching like a carbon score to all these things, I think it also just makes makes it more concrete. That being said, I do, I am a bit skeptical just by nature, and so I, I do think that maybe the methodology, I'm not quite sure of. Like, I think there might be still work to do there, uh, but. You know, it'll it'll get there in time. Like, I think one example, like one of those proxies was like looking at the length of an ads.txt file as a proxy for publishers, you know, carbon footprint or something like
0: that. Yeah, it is kind of, there's a lot of, (laughs) a lot of uh, estimates and nonsense And, and not to mention the fact that the main output of all of this is the opportunity to buy carbon credit. There's a lot of belief that carbon credits are a bit of a scam too. But uh, it's, it's pointing in the right direction, and I think we could all go along with, for the ride, and hopefully no one gets injured. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, I mean, this
2: is, it's interesting because it's a like whole new angle, basically, to how the industry operates. Yeah. What else is interesting, Rekha? I'll tell you what's exciting. Even better. Which is, which is a little bit different. And so I just want to say, like, first, I don't get excited very easily. You know, just... Uh... <laughs> I, I've never met you, but I, I feel like that's the case. Yeah, like, I, I don't like using exclamation marks, generally speaking, I think, you know, there's the whole Seinfeld episode, right, about exclamation marks. Um, but yeah, I, I tend to not use exclamation marks, things like that. But just watching the rapid development of AI
1: over the last few months has been legitimately exciting. What's exciting about it r- relative to, to ad tech, relative to, I think, all the, all the areas that
2: it can be applied? I guess like I've never bought into the whole crypto or blockchain or web three or any of that, especially for ad tech. It's it's like a pretty good sign if somebody tries to attach one of those things to like ad tech. It's like good rule of thumb is you can ignore it. But I'm incredibly bullish on AI. And I've been casually playing around with it, first with like the open AI stuff that they had available for like almost a year. I think it was like GPT three. But when chat GPT came out in December, it really felt like a big acceleration. And what was possible. And lately, I've been playing around with GPT-4 and the Whisper API. So I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that. No, I'm not familiar with Whisper. What is that? So Whisper is their transcription API service. And I'm just, I'm blown away by the potential opportunities there. So as far as like AI and ad tech go, I think there are sort of obvious opportunities that people have been highlighting things like, you know, AI-powered creative generation testing. Campaign optimization, things like that, maybe even a sort of next generation brand safety or or contextual targeting. But I think the non-obvious opportunity and a big one that I see comes from the drastic improvements in the AI powered transcription, sort of as the core. So they recently released the Whisper API. I tested it out firsthand. Uh, it's surprisingly accurate, but I think more importantly, it's a hundred times faster and a hundred times cheaper than traditional transcription services. And I think this creates a, a ton of opportunity. Uh, to give you like a concrete example, uh, transcribing an hour of audio takes about a minute and to,
0: to execute, and it costs around 32 cents. So how, what's the implication for ad tech? Is it better targeting on audio and video? Is it um, more made for advertising websites, which would not be a great thing? You're, you're thinking heading in the right direction. So I think it has massive
2: sort of applications in the audio space and in the video space basically places where text has typically been absent now with when you have cheap automated transcripts somebody could start by you know building these massive data sets of text either broadly or in specific you know niches and then once you have that sort of corpus of text i think you can do all sorts of interesting things you can train these you know large language models you can create chat interfaces for sort of asking those Data sets questions. You could build a traditional search engine for that audio content, which would allow for down the road, you know, search ads business to be built on top of it. You could add social aspects to podcasts, basically, where, um, you know, perhaps people could comment on specific segments of the audio. I just think the whole podcast space in
0: general is very archaic. Yeah, I've actually been looking into this exact subject because my architecture at this point has over a hundred hours of Detailed in-depth content on ad tech and martech, and so transcribing and training an AI on that is top of mind for me. Let's just say that. Yeah, that that would create like all sorts of I think interesting
1: derivative products and opportunities and like research. So um, I think that's that's actually super exciting and you know extends beyond just the the ad tech news case. The other thing that I'm spending more time on, and we actually you know made an investment last quarter. Uh, our first investment is just, you know, how AI and and some of this generative stuff can really start to impact workflow and, like, how people work in ad tech. And, you know, ad tech is always interesting because uh, it has such, like, obvious pain points and obvious, like, opportunities. So, you know, there's more data than, you know, any other category besides finance and, you know, the number of transactions per second, everything like that led, led to programmatic. I think one of the areas that's really interesting and, you know, can be, you know, attacked is just like how much manual work still gets done. How many like spreadsheets are just like cranked out to be put into a presentation to be overlaid with a little bit of like human insight on what they remember to ship to a client and everything like that. I'm seeing, you know, like real interesting innovation. Again, it's, it's, it's not an ad tech thing, but I think ad tech is perhaps like the beachhead or Lighthouse Market for this on just like AI to help workflow and just like free up people's time in the same way that you pointed to, you know, an hour of audio, you know, basically being transcribed and and delivered in a minute. I think that's coming for a lot of the manual processes that happen at the
0: client side, the agency side, basically everywhere. Yeah, I completely agree. One thing I'm interested in your opinion on, uh, because I get asked this a lot, which about AI's impact on optimization and data targeting. And my answer goes something like this, and Rekha, I, uh, I want to pressure test this to so tell me if you agree with this, which is ad tech and programmatic has millions of events every second with hundreds of data points on each event. And there's been a lot of investment in optimizing outcomes based on that. And whether you call them AI or not, they've already been invested in, they've been optimized, and you can get better, but we're probably pretty close to the efficient frontier on optimization based on these signals. So, this latest round of LLMs and uh, GPT and all that isn't really a needle mover for the core optimization problem. Am I an idiot? Is that smart?
2: What do you think? Yeah, you know what? I was thinking about the exact same thing. So I agree,
0: you have all these custom algorithm, like custom bidding algorithm companies, right? Is that is that who you're referring to? No, I'm just saying in general, uh, you know, there, someone might have a thesis that like you could displace one of the current DSPs with just better algorithms uh, because of AI. And I'm just a little skeptical of that because I think the algorithms from the core DSPs or from independents like Chalice or whomever, they're already pretty optimized. I, I don't think yeah. there's room for disruption here. Yeah, I agree. I don't think there's going to be Such a magnitude
2: change, at least in bidding decisions. Because here's the thing about bidding, and I'm sure you appreciate this, having been on the demand side. But speed is such a huge factor. Yeah, and uh, and so like I'm not sure that the most advanced LLMs today that I've that I've seen are kind of slow. Like they're they're more accurate, they can reason better, but they're not as fast as like older older models. So I'm not uh, an AI expert. Um, yeah, sure. But,
0: yeah, I agree with you. I think that there's, like, limits to how much you can optimize bidding decisions. All right. Let's let's uh, let's transition to some of the news of the week. I'm going to start off by going on a little bit of a rant, hopefully not too bad. Uh, <laughs> because... At, <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. So, two different... Twitter threads or news articles came out this week with more or less the same argument. Um, The first one was from Julie Anguin, a New York Times opinion columnist, and the second was from the author Cory Doctorow, who uh, was on Boing Boing, and he writes young adult fiction. I actually like his fiction a lot. He wrote a book called um, Little Brother that was excellent, but that's not the point. The point is that both of these uh, writers made the same false argument, which goes something like this. Back in the old days, people bought media based on context. He wanted to be in The New York Times, to be with The New York Times, and everything was good. And then the bad digital people came in, started stealing all your data, created surveillance capitalism. And because—this is the important part of the argument—because of behavioral advertising, the value of journalism and, and traditional media declined— Because advertisers can find the audience whatever they wanted, and they didn't have to buy the New York Times anymore. That's a summary of the argument. There's also a corollary to the argument about the value of the products being advertising behavioral. So let's hold on that one for a point. So I want to first debunk the basic theory here. Um, So there's several problems with this theory, and it's pretty obvious to anyone who's a practitioner why this is totally wrong. The first one is that it assumes it's a zero-sum game, that there's a single pool of advertising that would have gone to The New York Times but instead went elsewhere because of behavioral advertising. And that is just utterly false because it misses the point that behavioral advertising is so effective that the entire pie grew enormously over the last 20 years. So digital advertising skyrocketed because of the ability to do things you couldn't do previously. Technology-created innovation made the pie bigger. That's point one. Point two is this idea that the New York Times, et cetera, all the premium publishers would have reaped all the value of advertising if not for behavioral advertising. That's also false because the core problem the traditional media companies had was they were disintermediated by the Internet. And so consumers could find their news elsewhere through search and through Facebook and through, you know, blogs and things like that. And that was an important point. The second related point is that it's very inefficient to buy the audiences on these traditional publishers because the audience is highly fragmented. There are billions of people around the world consuming news, and it's just a different critical mass of audience on these sites than it used to be when you bought a newspaper and it was in every New Yorker's hands on the subway. So I'll stop there with my rant. Um, But it really drives me crazy how often this false point of view comes up it comes up all the time from people who are basically drive someone someone in my thread called them drive-by experts they're people who do not have expertise in advertising but have strong opinions about advertising eric do you want to tell me why i'm wrong yes
1: <laughs> you know i i try to i i try not to react when i when i read a thread like that when i read tweets like that i really try to understand the perspectives of the um of the writer. And I think they're just coming from a place to your point of, you know, may- maybe not as deep in terms of expertise. And, and I think um a place of nostalgia. I think you're you're right. I would add two things. Number one, what most folks don't talk about, although I think there was like a reaction thread to one of these threads was um, it wasn't just how the internet disrupted local news. It's also Craigslist. I mean, Craigslist destroyed the newspaper business. Yeah, because the newspaper business, you know, one of the, I don't think maybe not like a, it's a secret, but, you know, classifieds was how most of the newspaper businesses, like, you know, actually like, you know, kind of, were, were profitable and, and had a substantial amount of their revenue. And Craigslist completely gutted the classifieds category, you know, on an extremely low cost or even free basis, right? So when the finger pointing goes around, nobody points fingers at, at, at Craig. So I think that's, that's, I think, an additional dynamic. The other thing here that's, you know, I think not appreciated perhaps is um, just, an, you know, a very like sort of like helpful and, and user-friendly concept. You know, if you think about some of the use cases for digital advertising, you think about B2B, if I'm a decision maker at a, at a B2B company and I'm in market for some sort of like $250,000 like licensing agreement and there's, you know, a handful of vendors that, you know, I I need to be evaluating. Why should I be getting ads about like gardening when when I'm reading something, when I'm such a a high value prospect um, for a handful of companies that I want to be informed on to make my decision? How does that make, make sense from a user perspective? And you start to just like extrapolate that out. And that's why, I mean, Instagram ads, they're so darn effective. I open up Instagram, and I get ads for jiu-jitsu apparel and jujitsu equipment and that's what i get and that's really all i care about outside of like my kids and my family and my business so it's <laughs> you know <laughs> it's like it's it's so
0: not respecting of, of i think it's not respectful of the user I'll, I'll end my rant there kids family and beating people up that's eric's day uh racco what do you think yeah no i think you're bang on like I, I love a good rant and i agree
2: like the the i think the internet I mean, I think they're just basically shaking their fist at like the entire internet because the, the internet just, they, newspapers specifically, they had, they had a monopoly on distribution and they lost that monopoly when the internet came around and, you know, content became essentially limitless. So many alternatives to where people get their news or where they get their content. And, and I think that in addition to other things, just massively weakened them, you know, from a monetization
0: perspective, and from a traffic perspective. Yeah, there's, there's some sub threads to these arguments. The other, One of the sub threads is that contextual advertising is the best and it works great. And as practitioners, we all know what a joke that is, because there is an enormous amount of Internet content that lacks context. Um, think about mobile games. Uh, there's no context to mobile games. There's really very little context to social networks. When uh, Google did the deal many years ago, I'm dating myself, Google did this big deal to get exclusive rights to advertise on MySpace, um, and it was really unsuccessful. It was a terrible deal for Google. And what they called it was the contextual desert. They said MySpace is literally about nothing. It's like the Seinfeld website. There's no context. Every page is just a blob of gray ooze, and we couldn't advertise anything on it. Um, And a lot of the Internet's like that. So contextual doesn't work. It doesn't scale. And the places that have the best context are often places that advertisers want to avoid, like hard news. Um, There's a lot of context about disasters and tornadoes and wars, and that's not what people want. So that's one of the subthreads of this general uninformed argument. The other subthread, this is actually interesting. I'm, I'm interested in your point of view on this, which is, Part of this reason these threads started this week was because there was this study that some professors did that said that the products being advertised through behavioral advertising were lower quality products that also cost more. And that kind of gave me a little bit of a head scratcher as to why we cared. You know, is it so what? It was kind of my reaction. It's a product you're offering that's advertised. That's capitalism. I don't know. Was I missing something there? Yeah, I mean, they seem like their main grievance,
2: uh, at least the New York Times article, uh, you know, the perceived surveillance or the profiling that was associated with like this specific Razor's advertiser. And, you know, so it really, it really seemed kind of like hinged on that, but it, but they they were kind of making very sweeping generalizations uh, about the type of advertisers that, that benefit from highly targeted ads. And I think that the study was based on Facebook, if I right. recall, right? So, I mean, I think that says more about having a self-serve ad platform with very low barriers of entry than it does to the targeting methodology. Yeah,
0: there's it was, it was like a right-wing razor brand that was one of the examples. I, I think given what's happening in the United States, like if you're a right-wing entrepreneur worth your salt, you're creating a right-wing version of every single brand out there. There can going to be right-wing condoms, right-wing power bars, right-wing... Shoes. I don't know. As long as it's just own the libs with your consuming power is kind of the entrepreneurial trend right now, uh, and the New York Times sort of objected to that.
2: Yeah, and I think even even that point, I think I, I think it's fair to say like that some of the targeting does enable some of the divisiveness and some of the political messaging. So I think it's like it's maybe fair to acknowledge that, but at the same time, you know,
0: throwing out the baby with the bathwater, I, I don't think makes sense. Are there any right-wing condoms? Has anyone done right-wing condom brand? Because something that you can make a, a shooting metaphor there? Um, a free, free, free startup idea. Free startup idea. Right-wing condoms. Shoot your shot. Uh, okay. Um, Editor. <laughs> I'm going to have to click in my podcasting. I'm going to have to click the NSFW uh, checkbox this week. Okay. Uh, Permitive had some layoffs. Uh, it's always unhappy news, don't love layoffs, but it was pretty big. So 40% of staff, um, they said they hired head of revenue. Permutiv, for those of you who don't know, is a publisher-facing context company. Uh, they basically, in a privacy-protected way, collect data about uh, what consumers are viewing on publisher sites and then enable advertisers to buy ads in a privacy-protected contextual way. 40% of staff laid off. Um, is this... The death of contextual is this just a blip? Is this something we should care about?
2: I mean, I just think that. Uh, so generally, just generally speaking, I, I usually don't include stories about layoffs in the newsletter, especially when they're more like industry wide, because I think like permit is not the only company that's laying people off. But to your point, it is pretty high magnitude, and it is a bummer. But as far as like you know, what I would extract from that, it, it does seem to be that everyone, at least, seems to me. To be like battening the hatches with sort of expectations of time, tough times ahead. I'm not totally sure
0: if it's a like an indictment on their product, but that's just my opinion. I'm not sure. Uh, is there was this caused in part by Google putting off its Chrome deprecation of cookies year after year? Was was a bet on privacy that is turning out to take longer than anyone expected? Yeah. Oh, thanks. All disagreement. Go
1: ahead, Racco. sure
2: sure uh yeah i was i was gonna say I, i mean i don't think that that the you know the delay in the deprecation of cookies did did these kinds of companies any any kind of favors because you're right there's a certain bet that the future was gonna the future reality was gonna look a certain way and that uh advertisers would basically be forced to use certain certain tactics and and kind of go to publishers and you know buy their data directly and all these sorts of things, and I don't think Google did anybody any kind of favors by, um, or at least didn't do these kinds of companies any kind of favors when it came to like the
0: urgency of adopting their products, so I-, I, I... Urgency. Yeah, I totally agree with you about urgency. Eric, we're, tell us why we're wrong. Yeah, I, um, I don't know how many
1: publishers buy these solutions um, to be future-proofed versus being able to capitalize on the, on the revenue opportunities of, t- of today. And um, I think companies like this uh, have good solutions, and companies where we're, we're seeing ROI. I think it's a little bit more of just you know just general market conditions. I do recall they staffed up pretty aggressively after they raised that round. I believe it was SoftBank that, that that led it. So you know if the market slows down, if you know customers are taking long to sign contracts or, or renew, that that's just the the tea leaves, and you need to you need to make adjustments accordingly. But um, I could be wrong about you know. Publishers buying on, on on the on the future proof strategy.
0: It's just not typically something that you see from them. Yeah, they they really did grow pretty fast. So while we're on the subject of contextual, um, I think last week with um, with the publisher panel, we talked about this on again off again thing where European publishers are getting angry with contextual vendors about, and I put it in air quotes stealing our data unquotes by uh, scraping their websites and selling that data to advertisers. Um, so Ravgo, you did a poll about this um, is from your newsletter subscribers. You want to walk us through that? So I think um I think like the main gripe
2: that the publishers have seems to be with the verification vendors. So when I first heard this story and read this story, I thought it was like with all contextual targeting. and I, I do think that there is an aspect of it. There's a bit of like conflation there, but I, I do think that it's primarily with the verification vendors because you know, the classification crawlers or scrapers, uh, they're the same as the verification, basically, technology, right? So if publishers want to block them from the contextual classification part, they're also harming themselves because they would also be blocking the verification as well. Right. So I think they just feel like they're kind of backed into the corner but in, in that regard. I think it's like a
0: fair, it's understandable. I, I feel like this is this complaint is not about what it's really about. Uh, which is that publishers feel like the verification vendors are adversarial towards them. And then the fact that they also sell their data to the same people that they're verifying just really rubs them the wrong way.
2: Yeah. And then the whole part about like stealing, like publishers claiming that the contextual classification of their URLs that that, that belongs to them, I think is a little bit absurd. Yes. You know, publishers, they publish a web page on the internet, it has a URL. Contextual provider classifies, you know, the contents of that page into categories. I think that's the contextual vendor's data. You know, it's their classification of the article. They're categorizing the URL. They're not copying the information or repurposing it like a large language model, for instance. So,
0: Right, right. One interesting point here. I had Mark Zagorski on Mark TV, uh, a really good interview. Um, once again, very in-depth about their business. And he threw out a stat. I may be misremembering it, but... 80% of the revenue is data sales. Only 20% is verification. I thought that was good. Of... double verified for yeah. everybody. Yeah, double verified. Sorry. Uh, now, uh, is that, is that uh,
2: also brand safety or is that purely targeting?
0: Yeah, brand safety, all, all pre-bid up
2: stuff. Got it. Yeah. So, I mean, the, in terms of the poll, so the last question of the week was, what should ad verification companies do about their contextual targeting products in light of these publisher concerns? And uh, 53% of the responses said uh, they should enable some kind of opt-out mechanism.
0: Uh, 34% said they should share the revenue. And 14% said they should do nothing. Yeah, this is kind of like asking kids when they think their bedtime should be. Uh, but I get, yeah. I get the point. <laughs> what's And <laughs> what's perplexing is that one would
1: expect that, you know, the types of publishers that you know are making noise on this you know presumably they're they're sort of like you know premium publishers with a with a business one would expect that these are the types of publishers that benefit from these solutions most as well
2: yeah and that's also the part where i have uh you know i take issue with the whole compensation part like there's a like in terms of the sharing the revenue because last time i checked publishers are compensated every single time an advertiser decides to buy an ad on what it sounds pays. like the ad tech tax, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's almost it like uh, it's like, do you want to get paid twice for the same impression?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's uh, there's not a lot of logic here. Um, yeah, also, I think it's interesting. One of the one of the things that really frustrated me at, at my last company, Beeswax, was that the basic Open RTB programmatic protocol includes contextual information. There's a whole node of OpenRTB for the context based on IAB categories. And what is annoying is that it is universally ignored. Nobody uses it. And we recommended to our clients not to use it because they lie. The publishers lie. The publishers always want to be sports and auto in all these cool categories when in fact they're not. And that's why this whole additional cost, let's call it that, exists. Um, If there was some way that SSPs had clamp down on this and could guarantee that the context was accurate, the world would be a better place and everyone could, you know, not have to pay the 10 cent CPM or 25 cent CPM to for to a third party. But that's not going to happen. That's like that's that that train left the station a long, long time ago.
2: You're totally right. It's 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 an unreliable so you know when we were building the DSP, same same deal, right? Like it's it's an unreliable signal, the the category attributes.
0: Yeah. They're totally unreliable. All right, with that, I think we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up. So please follow uh, Marketecture TV online um, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, we post our videos there about once a week, and subscribe at Marketecture TV to our newsletter. With that, Rakoff. thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, Rakoff.
1: Thank you for subscribing to Markitecture. New interviews are added every week at marketecture.tv in your favorite podcasting app.